welcome to What About Us, a podcast about how policies affect rural Tennesseans. Thank you for listening. We are finally leading our series on health care. I hope you looked into the Medicaid block grant proposal. The public comment period concluded on October 18th, so TennCare is to modify the plan based on comments and send it to the federal government by November 20th, and then the feds will ask for public comment. I understand that there was much opposition from patients, family members, medical professionals, and healthcare groups. There's also some question that the proposal is illegal. We are the first state to request a block grant, along with Utah and uh, Alaska lining up. I will keep you posted. We, today we're going to ask, what about our taxes? Linda Sherrill is back with us. She did an earlier podcast about the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and its effect on small business owners in Tennessee. We also had a good discussion about our minimum wage. Linda is a CPA and currently the stake director of Tennessee's Small Business Alliance. Welcome again, Linda. Thanks, Sandy. Good to be back. Great. Two things that I've been more aware of about our taxes recently, uh, one from a 72819 article in the uh, Chattanooga Times Free Press that said that Tennessee was the highest state uh, was the highest uh, state for local sales tax uh, in the nation for the second year in a row. Also, we were number one in 2012 to 2015. Our sales tax is 9.49 percent. So, to do your shopping, um, don't go to Arkansas because it's 9.454 percent. Alabama is 9.16%. Louisiana and Washington are up there. And Georgia is 7.33%. So I'm going to Atlanta on Thursday to do shopping. I also knew that there was no income tax, but I wasn't aware that that, that not having income tax is a, has been a hard-fought battle. Uh, we are one of nine states with little or no income tax. And in 2014, there was a constitutional amendment in Tennessee to permanently take income tax off the table. So, Linda, does that balance things out for us, a high sales tax and no income tax? Well, not exactly. Um, And and I want to say, too, I just read um, this week that I believe Memphis, in their latest election, passed uh, uh, a new uh, hike on their local sales tax, and so their total local sales tax in Memphis is nine point seven five percent now. I mean, almost oh, okay. almost ten percent. Wow. So, um, so you know, when you look at um, how our state government is funded. Uh, we know that about 54% of the total revenue that Tennessee takes in comes from sales tax. Um, there's, there's, you know, some support that's coming in from uh, the federal government. Uh, federal government contributes about 37% to our total. So, you know, but that's mostly for funding Medicaid and, and for health care. Um, so the problem, as I see it, with a, a state sales tax funding the majority of our of our government is that you know in times of recession uh, when people aren't spending as much your sales tax on things people buy are going to be less Mm -hmm. and that puts your your state government in you know the the position of either having to cut services or find other revenues some way, and, it, and that's really a tough hill to climb. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Um, now, I've heard that we have a regressive tax. What does that mean? Well, that's a, that would be a sales tax. So, so regressive taxes essentially take a larger percentage of income from the pockets of lower income and maybe even middle income earners than those with higher incomes. So, you know, with a flat sales tax, sort of look at it this way. Uh, someone is who is making $25,000 a year and spending all of that, um, you know, with a 10% or let's just say 10% for ease of, you know, doing the, doing the math, um, $2,500 of that then is spent on sales tax. That leaves them with $22,500 to spend on everything else. Mm-hmm. Somebody who's making $200,000 a year, and they're going to spend 10% on sales tax, $20,000, that leaves them with $180,000. They've still got a lot of money, you know, to, money. Survive, right. mm-hmm. to survive. Mm-hmm. So that's how a regressive tax works, though. If you have a, an income tax, like our federal income tax structure, that is progressive, your tax rate theoretically goes up the higher your income. So if you're making at that lowest income bracket, you would be paying 10% on an income tax, federal income tax level. And let's say if you're making over 500000 a year, your highest tax rate right now would be 37%. So mm-hmm. effectively, you're paying more, at least that's the theory, Effectively, you're paying more the higher your income now. For sales, for, for buying things. Well, for for I'm talking about income tax as a progressive, oh, I see. Okay. Mm-hmm. As a progressive tax, that would be versus a regressive tax where everybody is paying basically a flat rate. That also applies to property taxes, by the way. Oh, okay, okay. But the thing with um, high-income people is they have income from other sources like stocks and bonds and well, right, right. And so that adds to their income but isn't a sales tax where people in a lower income bracket wouldn't wouldn't have that protection. I mean, there's just a lot of things that protect the wealthy. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, you know, so so wealthy people, you know, tend to have assets that lower and middle income people don't have. So they have things like stocks and bonds. Uh, stocks and bonds are taxed on an income tax basis, that is capped at 15%. They're never going to pay any more than 15% on income from um, from stocks and bonds or when they sell a stock and have a gain, they're only going to pay 15%, maximum 15% on that. Um, there are other assets that are protected, things like real estate mm-hmm. and personal property. Like um, boats. and Boats and artwork, <laughs> uh-huh. even racehorses. <laughs> you know, get a break. <laughs> uh, you know, most of us, you know, most of us normal, ordinary people. You know, Did you come over us. on your racehorse today? <laughs> no. Or your I, boat? <laughs> my racehorse was, uh, was, was not available. <laughs> And they also have no inheritance tax. They probably have a greater um, possibility of inheriting quite a bit of money than well, yeah, and most people. And you know, back um, <clears throat> I believe it was in two thousand one, there was a major overhaul of the federal income tax structure, and whereas uh, you know estates were taxed, I believe the exemption at that point 
was maybe five million. Um, it may have even been as low as one million. Uh, and then on anything above that estate, you paid an inheritance tax. Now, effectively, that's gone. Okay. I, I mean, you know, if you have an estate over eleven million, mm-hmm. uh, you may pay some inheritance tax. Uh, and if you're married, if it's a couple, it's it's an estate over twenty two million. Okay. okay. So you know that really doesn't impact low and in low and middle income in middle income people right. at all. And you know, it's again, you know, that was a source of revenue. Uh, to fund both state and federal government, and mm-hmm. that's gone now. Okay, that's been taken off the table unless mm-hmm. there's a, uh, I mean, some effort to look at looking at income tax again. But but I do think people feel that that is a great a- advantage until they go shopping, mm-hmm. and then that that tax starts to hit. Mm-hmm. So so. Um, uh, Three things usually make up a um, the tax structure in order to create equality or to prevent the, the inequality of the things that we've talked talked about between middle income and and the wealthy: um, sales tax, income tax, and property tax. Mm-hmm. Anything else to? So we we're, our stool is a little wobbly. We have a two-legged stool. We have a two-legged stool, right. We do have property tax. We do have sales tax. But again, those are both regressive taxes. Mm-hmm. They are they are flat rates. Flat rates, okay. Now, I guess Tennessee has always had a rainy day fund, mm-hmm. um, and now it's at $1 billion, But that really won't help us if we have a big problem. Is that right? It sounds like a lot of money. It's a lot of money to me, but for to run a whole state. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, the the state's total budget is right at thirty eight billion, mm-hmm. and so if you do the math, you know that rainy day fund of a billion would fund uh, state government for about twenty six days. Okay. You know, we've got about a twenty six day cushion, uh-huh. which is not nothing, but it's still. You know, yeah. precarious, right? Yeah. In in the scheme of things, mm-hmm. I know they always used to say in your savings, savings you should have a, uh, amount of two paychecks. Mm-hmm. So most people get paid every other week. So that would still that wouldn't mm-hmm. get you very far either. So it just if something happens, it takes a lot of money to to yeah. get through. Yeah. And and you know, keep in mind that Tennessee does have a balanced budget amendment. They have to balance. Okay. Our, our state legislature is required by state law to to balance the budget every year. Okay. So in the event of a downturn like we had in 2008-2009 when sales tax revenues are down, mm-hmm. uh, property values fall, so mm-hmm. property tax revenues are down, they have to dip into that rainy day fund. Right, and right. as you know, in 2008, that recession had lasted longer than 26 days. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of rain. A lot of rain. So um, I meant to ask, is there any, we had, we talked about the things that benefit the wealthy, anything for regular folk? Do we get a break on anything? Well, there is, uh, there was a cut to the tax that we pay on food. Okay, groceries. Groceries, right. yeah. Yeah, not restaurants, but uh, yeah, groceries that you buy. Okay. Uh, I think that stands at about 4% okay. now on okay. groceries. Mm-hmm. Okay, it was sort of following the lead of Georgia, which you referred to earlier. Georgia's had that break for a long time. 
And Tennessee finally did it. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about the Tennessee budget a little bit. Is that the next thing there? Okay. Our budget is $37.5 billion mm-hmm. for 2019. And where does that money go? How is that broken up in a pie? Well, there's sort of uh, three major building blocks uh, I look at them uh, as building blocks to economic growth and security because, you know, that's what we want for our state, right? That's mm-hmm. that's what we're trying to do. Um, and so uh, there are three major places where that goes. Um, 46%, 46%. This may surprise you and it may not uh, since you've been talking about it <laughs> on your last podcast. 40, fully 46% of our state budget pays for health care and social services. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, 29% goes to K-12, uh, public education, and higher education, our, our state institutions of higher learning. And then the remainder, 25%, goes for things like public safety, um, roads, infrastructure, things like that. But I was surprised at the 46% and also that our budget, um, the revenue we get from uh, the federal government, 78% is on health care. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, my my theme throughout has been um, we get a lot of money from, from Medicaid, which I think that's probably mostly where that comes from. Um, and we still have poor health care, especially mm-hmm. in rural areas. Mm-hmm. So... I'm not sure how to interpret that other than does most of the money go for urban care, the big city hospitals or the cities, because um, it just seems like there's just a trickle of another hospital in Manchester that's in financial difficulty. Mm -hmm. It's not closing. It's kind of the Bonnaroo Hospital. Mm -hmm. So they have that little spurt of activity. But um, it's... There are many hospitals to say in rural Tennessee, which there's a lot of rural Tennessee that are in, um, you know, dire straits. And I didn't feel that the Medicaid block grant proposal addressed that um, hardly at all. So, yeah, so and I just, think you may know this, you know, through your great work on advocating for quality, affordable health care for, for all. Mm-hmm. Um, but my sense is that rural areas have a higher proportion of folks who would be eligible mm-hmm. for Medicaid had Tennessee expanded mm-hmm. uh, Medicaid and taken those those federal dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when you have a higher proportion of uninsured people mm-hmm. in rural areas, then your hospitals are going to struggle because they have right. uncompensated mm-hmm. care. I mean, they're required by law mm-hmm. to take care of sick people, but who pays for that? Right, right. And I wonder if if just not having a better better health all along just overall costs us more. I mean, I've suspected mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. if you if you have someone whose illness, chronic illness especially, is managed well, they don't end up in the emergency room mm-hmm. for something that could have been... Uh, taken care of, but I don't have any. And that's a budget issue too, right? Right. And, um, you know, uh, the education, um, 29%, we have problems in that um, area too. So it's, it's tough. Um, And then, and then needing uh, the revenues from um, 
the sales tax. Uh, so state revenue was forty-seven percent, right? Mm-hmm. So we've had, so our our re- revenues, the money that comes into the state, thirty-seven um, percent federal, forty-seven mm-hmm. percent state revenue, and you have fifty-four percent from sales tax. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then 9% from gas tax. And I don't know why I'm just not letting you say all this, but <laughs> 15% from F&E. What is F&E? That's franchise and excise tax. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, uh, but the 9% uh, that comes in from the gas tax, again, that was, again, that's a flat regressive tax. Mm-hmm. All of us mm-hmm. pay 9% no matter how much gas we buy. And that was something that... Um, you know, Governor Haslam really pushed for as again another source of revenue for the state governments you know, uh, for the right, state budget right. because we had to have it. Right. And it was controversial, mm-hmm. but I think in the end, um, the the Republican Party, you know, which has typically, you know, they his uh, Bill Haslam, of course, is a Republican. And his Republican legislature really didn't support that gas tax at the beginning. But when it came to trying to balance the state budget, they realized that they needed it. And they so tried the to manipulate tax. some other things to make it more palatable, did they not? Or? There was there were all sorts of <laughs> all know, sorts of things. Yeah, negotiations that went on. And this and this is this is high a gas tax of this is high is that right I think so um, I haven't looked at that recently but it it does seem high to me compared to other states um, because I think sometimes it, it feels like our gas prices are maybe lower than other states mm-hmm. and I'm not sure if that's better pipeline or you know I don't know but mm-hmm. but but the thing about this is this is some again rural areas because mm-hmm. we use gas because everything's so far apart we have to we have to have our cars yeah right to get a job to maintain a job Mm -hmm. to take care of family members which Mm -hmm. is what a lot of people do and just to get to the grocery store i mean we have a little store seven miles from here Mm -hmm. and then we have another store 20 miles 20 miles Mm -hmm. so i really hate to go to the store now that i live Mm -hmm. in the country Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of concern about inequality across the country within Nashville and between Nashville and the rest of the state. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yes. Rich get richer and the rest of us kind of stay the same. Yeah. Um, and, and so, again, that goes back to this regressive uh, tax structure um, that we have. Um I spend a good amount of time in Nashville, and so I'm very aware of some of the conversations that go on there about income inequality. And in Nashville, it plays out uh, more as an affordable housing sort of issue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, as you know, Nashville has grown. It's been one of the fastest growing cities in the nation. Um, There was a recent Brookings Institution Analysis that identified Nashville as the seventh fastest growing Boy, city in yeah. the country. And, uh, you know, when you go there, you know, the first thing, of course, you notice is the traffic, I, you know, coming out of Nashville or going in. You know, if you go in before nine o'clock in the morning or leave mm-hmm. after three in the afternoon, mm-hmm. you are just in traffic uh, and, and the roads mm-hmm. are inadequate uh, mm-hmm. to handle it. But the bigger crisis um, has been in their in their housing market. Mm-hmm. 
lots of folks um, moving into Nashville uh, have come from areas where they have sold their homes at higher prices, and so they have more money available to to basically buy. They literally, in areas where they talk about gentrification, they will buy an older home, tear mm-hmm. it down, and build a bigger home right, right. on that property, mm-hmm. displacing uh, a lot of folks um, that are longtime residents. Um, as a result, um, you know, it's sort of appeared recently that income inequality in Nashville is decreasing, but you sort of have to look inside the numbers to understand why it appears to be that way. So, you know, if you look at the census data in 2017, 63.2% of Metro Nashville households... um, Is that okay? It's okay. Oh, okay. 63.2% of Metro Nashville households um, fell into that middle income range, which was defined as between 23,000 and 113,000. Below 23,000, you're in federal poverty level, and above 113,000, you're you're basically getting into the higher income level. So so in that middle income range in 2017, 63% of Metro Nashville households fell into that. That's opposed to in 2000, 61%. So the middle income households has grown due mostly to the types of jobs that have been that have become available there Uh, construction wages are up 19 percent because there's a lot of construction going on in Nashville there's more demand for those types of jobs so wages have boosted the hospitality industry is up wages are up 16 percent so that's boosted income that's accounted for some of the growth in household incomes and and then in the metro area itself, you've got these, uh, you know, sort of advanced manufacturing jobs like, mm-hmm. you know, Nissan, for instance, mm-hmm. has moved now its corporate headquarters oh, to Nashville. Mm-hmm. And so people who are working in the corporate headquarters are higher wage earners. To say nothing of the advanced manufacturing jobs that are available within the auto industry itself, and Tennessee has good, done a, a fairly good job of training folks in community colleges for those for those jobs. Um, however, you know, the affordable housing has been sort of the result. The lack of affordable housing has been the result of rising wages. And the folks in the lower income, uh, long-time residents, senior citizens who are Mm -hmm. on fixed incomes, you know, many times now their property values have gone up, so their property taxes have gone up, Mm -hmm. unless Mm -hmm. the municipality has passed some sort of uh, local legislation to protect that from happening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and a little bit later we may talk about the baby boomers. Mm. Retiring and mm-hmm. so taking more out of federal things, but you know they're not they're not having an income, and so I bet there's a lot of baby boomers in Nashville uh, when things were a bit quieter. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah, and it wasn't such a, a booming, growing. Yeah. And I will tell you, after living 15 years in Atlanta, their highways 
in and out of the city, which Atlanta is bigger than Nashville, but just looking forward um, to some things that Tennessee is going to have to consider is, you know, there's eight lanes, Mm. 16-lane highways and flyovers and Spaghetti Junction. Mm -hmm. And, you know, is is Nashville going to need that in order to continue growing or to have happy residents? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's Mm -hmm. you you miss a lot of, of your family life if it takes you an hour, hour and a half. I mean, and sometimes if there's an accident and people do get impatient and they make bad decisions, mm-hmm. and then that's mm-hmm. another hour and you're not home until the kids are in bed and things mm-hmm. like that. So quality of life is going to be something that the state yeah. has to look. I remember, you know, um, when we first moved to Chattanooga um, in the 70s, I frequently went to Atlanta, and mm-hmm. I remember the growing pains Atlanta had traffic-wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and over you know forty years, uh, they have managed it. And it it it's not back then. It was not unlike what Nashville is dealing with today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they they put in just the actual lanes, mm-hmm. uh, express lanes, um, but their public transportation system has not grown since its inception, maybe I think there's a track uh, that they've added to the northern part of the city, but um, Nashville doesn't have that at all, except the bus. But Buses, I mean, as far as and, a and there metro, is, a, a subway, underground. Yeah, there is one train um, line that comes in from Lebanon on the I-40 oh. corridor. Okay. okay. And that helps, but then they you know they come into the station which is downtown and then they have to get to Something there's else. only one station so there is nothing other than bus transportation mm-hmm. um once you get to the to the downtown station so yeah there's still a lot of uh, public transportation issues yeah, to deal yeah. with yeah and just infrastructure basically know, right you know mm-hmm. when a piece of the freeway falls <laughs> anyway yeah we won't we won't go there mm-hmm. we should talk about roads sometime. <laughs> okay, I haven't I haven't mentioned the presidential candidates. Um, certainly when we talked about health care, but we may go back and, and do that. But I wonder if we could just look at a few and generally, you know, see what their plans are um, to reduce the gap between the wealthy and middle incomes. Yeah. yeah, so so it's really interesting when you look at, of course, you know, the Democratic side is where all of the candidates are now. What are mm-hmm. we at? 20 now. I don't know no, how many. Um, I just know there's 12 at the next um, <sighs> debate. So, you know, mm-hmm. how much we're going to be able to hear. You know, it's hard to explain a position in, I don't know, 15 seconds. So, right. Yeah, it's so hard. That, that, will, the, that will change. But anyway. none of them get a whole lot of time. But, <laughs> you know, if you look at them out there on the campaign trail, you know, essentially all of them are talking about. Reducing income inequality—it's—it's it's going to be um, a, an, a campaign issue uh, going into 2020. Uh, and it's interesting when you look at them. I, before I came to this podcast, I looked up to see how the candidates themselves would be impacted by their uh, own tax proposal, and and all of them pretty much would be paying more taxes as a result <laughs> on their personal income mm-hmm. as a result of their proposals. So um, the four top polling candidates um, are Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, 
they all make in excess of a half a million a year, some uh, a great deal more than that. But, um, you know, so they're all making proposals that would raise the marginal tax rate on those on high income earners, uh, earners like themselves. Um, the problem is that um, they're all making big promises mm-hmm. uh, for what they're going to deliver, and a lot of it, as you know, revolves around things like Medicare for all, um, also free higher education. Um, they all have very aggressive platforms about how they're going to fight against climate change. And all of that cuts mon- uh, costs money. So, um, so they all have proposals about how they're going to pay for that. Most of them have a restructuring of the rates. So right now, what we have is the lowest, if, you know, if you're in the lowest income bracket, you're going to pay a 10% rate. And then uh, as you move up the income level, you pay progressively more on the ex- excess over that level, all the way up to a 37% max. And okay. you may remember that, you know, when the Tax Cut and Jobs Act was passed, mm-hmm. the top rate was 39.6%. Tax Cut and Jobs Act gave, of course, huge cuts to corporations, which has been mm-hmm. a big issue mm-hmm. for our small business owners. Mm-hmm. The, the corporations got a 40% tax cut to their rate. Small business owners and individuals got much, much less in the way of tax cuts. But that was, um, that Tax Cut and Jobs Act was another thing that impacted our federal budget and mm-hmm. our federal, and our, frankly, our national debt mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. deficit each year. Just less income. Just less, less income, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, a lot of people think that, you know, the way to reduce, um, our federal budget and to reduce our debt is just to cut spending, but you can also impact stimulate growth. <laughs> well, and you can also impact the federal budget by cutting revenue, which is taxes that okay. we pay in. It gives the federal budget, you know, less to spend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, unless you cut services, you're still you're going to go in the hole because you have less revenue coming right, in from right. taxes. That's why they call it a deficit. That's exactly right. We may talk a little bit more about that before. before but the we're done. but the but the but the candidates getting back to the candidates have various proposals about how they would restructure those those tax brackets so that actually it goes up more on the folks who are earning more. Mm-hmm. It's not. Uh, not necessarily going to raise taxes on low and middle income earners because all of them talk about income inequality as a national problem. Um, Elizabeth Warren actually is proposing a wealth tax, mm-hmm. which um, she proposes a 2% tax on total holdings an individual has above $500 million. So under her plan, you would take all your stocks and bonds, your retirement funds, your personal residence, your um, your business value of a business that you own, and if that adds up to more than $50 million, you would be taxed 2% 
on the excess over $50 million. So if you owed, if you owned $60 million, you'd be taxed 2% on $10 million, right? Okay. So okay. 200000 And then she goes even further and says if your holdings add up to more than a billion dollars, then the rate is going to go up to 3% on anything you hold over 3%. So that's her way of saying the wealthy, uh, extremely wealthy individuals will, you know, need to pay more. Actually, when you look at it, that only impacts about 75,000 taxpayers. So I don't know anybody here in rural (laughs) Tennessee who that is going to impact. Right, right. Um, So we should be able to support that. Yeah, um, Bernie Sanders, um, you know, he he um, tweaks uh, a little bit more in terms of brackets. He takes the rates that wealthy um, earners uh, pay all the way up to um, 66%. Um, but again, you're only going to pay that rate if you're making more than $10 million a year. Mm-hmm. So, again, you know, for rural um, Tennessee, most people are not going to be impacted by that. If you're making more than $10 million or you have holdings maybe of more than $500 million, okay. you might be impacted on, on under some of these candidates. But that's the way they're sort of playing out. And then you sort of have Andrew Yang, who is out there. He has this interesting proposal of a freedom dividend where... Uh, every person in the country, every man, woman, and child is going to get $1,000 per month in universal income, and he's proposing to pay for that with a 10% value-added tax, uh, which would add more to what we pay. It's sort of a sales tax, but it's assessed on a federal level. Okay, okay. But it would come back to you in the form of $1,000 a month. Okay. Uh, so, I don't know. It's sort of interesting. It's it's an innovative proposal, for sure, but that's sort of his solution. The, the others have, you know, varying uh, versions of increasing taxes on the very wealthy. And not that I don't know if this is fair or not, but if, if I made... Um, um, Fifty million dollars, and I had it uh, of all my assets, and I had to pay an extra two percent. How much would that be? Well, again, you know, if if you made, you don't pay, you don't pay that tax on anything you own. You you own under fifty million. It's only right, when right, you right. go over. So go if over. I went over it, if you went to fifty-one million, two uh-huh. percent of one million would be twenty thousand. Okay, so I would have, I would still have over fifty million. Right. Well, right. You know, I would be happy to be part of an experiment. <laughs> okay, you give me fifty-one million dollars, and then take twenty thousand dollars, and see if I can still manage. Can I be a part? You want to be a part of that study? I, yeah, maybe maybe they could just give us fifty fifty one million dollars, uh-huh. and uh, we'll see if, <laughs> if we can get by after paying that twenty thousand dollars. Yeah, uh, yeah. Something tells me that wouldn't be a hardship. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing that you said um, that uh, if these taxes for the wealthy uh, wouldn't impact us. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the deficit. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I just just to be fair, uh, we talked about the a little bit about the candidates mm-hmm. um, for president. So, and to look at the current administration, you know, has given the tax breaks, which we've we've talked a, a lot, and especially to corporations in order to, to kind of stimulate the um, the economy. Um, do we think it's do we th- do we have any sense? Of whether the tax breaks, when we did the podcast before, we, we weren't really sure it had worked out very well for rural Tennessee and small businesses. Mm-hmm. The jury was still out. Are we kind of still in that? It's just been a few months. We don't have any, well, any more sense that people are better off maybe getting a little bit more in their paychecks. I don't know. You know, for small, for small business owners, you know, again... You know, the, when the Tax Cut and Jobs Act was passed, it was um, put out there that small businesses would have more money to, in, to reinvest into their businesses. Uh, they would hire more workers. That would raise, raise wages. Their taxes mm-hmm. would be simplified. And survey after survey has not shown that. It has not proven that. To, you know, it has not proven out. And we still have um, some, some inequality. Probably that hasn't made a big um, or well, maybe, maybe more unequal. Yeah. I, well, I mean, I, you know, because of the way the Tax Cut and Jobs Act was structured, with most of the tax breaks going to the very wealthy and the large corporations, it has only okay. increased income inequality. Um, you know, the the I saw a statistic recently that the top 1% okay. of households in our country own roughly 40% of the nation's wealth. And, you know, we talked earlier about um, inheritance tax. Most of that wealth passes on from generation to generation to generation, Mm -hmm. further increasing, you know, the ability of of folks, um, you know, the the bottom 90%, for instance, own 21% of the nation's wealth. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you project that out over generations, when there's less to pass on to succeeding generations from the other from the bottom 90%, mm-hmm. and there's more to pass on to the top 1%. Okay, so we can just look to the future and with, with this current situation. It's only situation. going to grow unless we begin to address this issue of wealth and income inequality. Okay. And the other thing that we have... Um, um, is a what is predicted to be a one trillion dollar um, deficit by the year 2020. So you know what does that actually mean? How does that impact us now going forward? Well, I mean, I know, can't even imagine a trillion dollars. A trillion dollars, and and can you imagine what kind of interest we're paying on that? Well, I happen to know that. Okay, a billion dollars a day. A day. A day. Oh my goodness. $365 billion a year. So who's going to make, who's going to pay off this trillion dollars? Well, you know, it's going to pass down to our children and grandchildren. Okay, so you know, it's, it's not reasonable to bring that down, especially with that interest rate by tax by taxes. I mean, even if we went a huge increase on every American mm-hmm. to, to pay taxes, we wouldn't be able to do that. Well, I mean, it so it's got to go forward. It's got to be a combination of, you know, politicians uh, on all sides of the aisle, (laughs) including independents, Uh are sort of in the business of making big promises promises. to Mm -hmm. to get elected. And yet they're not 
comfortable talking about what it takes to pay for it. Mm -hmm. And what it takes to pay for it, of course, is taxes. So as a nation, I think we have... cuts. Right. Mm -hmm. And cuts... cuts In spending. Cuts in spending. And so, you know, I think we as a nation eventually are going to have to come to grips, Mm -hmm. you know, with this situation. And come together. And come together and agree that, you know, this, the path we are on is not sustainable. Uh, One of the things uh, that economists look at a lot is this ratio of national debt Mm -hmm. to gross domestic product. Okay. All right? Mm -hmm. And we sit right now at at a 79%. So, you know, think of it this way. Um, If if you are earning $50,000 a year, and you have debt of forty thousand. Mm-hmm. You know you don't have, and and that's eighty percent of 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 your income. It's going to take you a long time at a at a fifty thousand oh. dollar salary mm-hmm. to pay off forty thousand in debt. Mm-hmm. That's where we are as a country, mm-hmm. and we're spending enormous amounts, as you've pointed out, on interest that could be going for other things that really stimulate our economy rather than paying interest. We'd have to cut our safety net, which I think is talked about, you know, quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Getting rid of Medicaid and Medicare, that's going to be very difficult, saving money on Medicaid. And, of course, again, back to health, health care costs are rising you know all the time and there's some people making a lot of money out Mm -hmm. of that we've talked Mm -hmm. about that um but infrastructure climate change investment in our country defense these are all things that we can't pay for if we have this this huge debt and um but we just keep spending. Well, um, and we actually... We're in, you, the government spending is way up. It is. And, and we have some challenges that are causing that spending to go up without making arbitrary decisions about spending, you know, more on defense that, you know, mm-hmm. maybe is not as pressing as things like, you know, we have an aging population. You men- mentioned the baby boomers. Yeah, the baby boomers. You know, the baby boomers are not getting any younger, and their health care costs are going to go up. Right, and they're not putting in, to, they don't make as much, so there's not as much taxes. And these are the folks Correct. born between 1946 and um, 1964. Mm-hmm. So. And that's going to be a big contributor to, you know, increased spending uh, until that generation sort of moves through um, mm-hmm. the pipeline. Mm-hmm. And as you pointed out, healthcare costs are not going down either. You know, that's that's growing at an unsustainable rate as well. Right. So so politicians are really not paying attention. Not enough attention to you the know, deficit. And and they have uh, good information coming out of the Congressional Budget Office. Mm-hmm. That's trying to raise all of these red flags. Mm-hmm. I mean, I saw recently that the the Congressional Budget Office had forecast a ninety five percent ratio of national debt to gross domestic product. That means that we would owe as much as we make in one year, right. as much as you know we generate in one year. Mm-hmm. That is dangerous. That is higher 
than it's been since right after World War II when we were spending enormous amounts on, right. on the Great II. War. And then also the deficit was this high um, during the economic downturn in 2008 to mm-hmm. 2012 mm-hmm. when... Uh, when it was really a crisis, mm-hmm. and and now we have it when things are felt to be p- pretty good, right? You know, but the other thing is, is it really is more than than jobs, and they've so we're, so we're so we're doing better there. The economy is is good, but we've got this other you know side of it. So it's going to take some um, strong leadership and some fiscal responsibility. Mm-hmm to kind of get us through this before something happens. And, you know, it's a little bit disputed, but some of the, you know, the people that know so much more about this than, you know, all of us mm-hmm. are kind of, you know, predicting that. So um, what's our action plan? <laughs> you can't run away. <laughs> you can't hide. Um I mean, personally, um, I think it would help for all of us who are taxpayers mm-hmm. to start holding our elected officials accountable. Mm-hmm. You know, when they promise, um, you know, new services, um, you know, uh, new programs that are going to cost money, the question is, uh, good, how do you plan to pay for that? Right. And certainly, we can ask that of other, the well, the presidential candidates. We just really need to try to find, get their information and their thoughts on these things from something other than the debates, mm-hmm. or demand somehow that the debates be um, smaller. Mm-hmm. And um, if, if that's that doesn't happen, then to as individuals to dig a little further. So I'm always telling the listeners to, you know, go to the library and check out the newspapers and things, but I don't really even see that much in mm-hmm. the papers. So you, so you might have to Google, mm-hmm. um, which when I realized that our discussion this morning could, you know, go to this mm-hmm. and, and comparing the presidential candidates and what's happening currently, just mm-hmm. to be fair and, and balanced, you know, I, I found some good information just by putting what is the federal deficit, what's our national debt, and then more importantly, what does that mean, you know, to us? Mm-hmm. So a little bit more digging to be, you know, aware of it. And, and critical thinking. I mean, just think about your own budget. You know, you just go out, can't go out and buy a boat when you make 50000 a year mm-hmm. and just say, oh, well, I'll get around to that. I'll get around to paying for that. <laughs> but in the meantime, know? I'm going to have a really, really good time. And if I don't pay for it, my kids will after I'm gone. <laughs> Somehow I think someone might be coming for you <laughs> sooner <laughs> when you don't, can't pay your mortgage and right. you're homeless and things like that. Yeah. So, so. Um, but I think, yeah. you know, um, the, the one thing we know is that elected officials most, uh, mostly listen when they're up for re-election. Okay. And if we are informing ourselves about where our elected officials stand as candidates mm-hmm. when they're talking. And this is at all levels. At all levels, uh, from you know mayor and city council all the way up to Congress, Senate, and, and the president. Mm-hmm. If we're informing ourselves as to where they stand, and not just believing 
what they say when they're campaigning, mm-hmm. but looking at how they voted. Yes, right, exactly. To go that to is way. really going to tell the story of where they stand when it comes to issues like this. Mm-hmm. You know, how did they vote on the Tax Cut and Jobs Act mm-hmm. that added $1.5 trillion to our federal def- deficit? Right. And another thing that I saw from um, doing a little Googling this morning is some clips of what uh, people said mm-hmm. at their campaign or through their campaign, what they promised, what they promised us. Mm-hmm. And is that compared to what, what the situation we see ourselves um, in, in right now. The other thing I always like to pull in, um, and, and we have a little bit of critical thinking, you know, to listen more closely. I talked to, uh, about this with the, the Medicaid a proposal. A lot of language was very flowery mm-hmm. and health and empowerment and vague. And uh, I, I just don't think we can put up with that anymore. We need to just say... Well, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. You know, just look a little bit further than maybe a little soundbite or <clears throat> a convincing, you know, argument um, to be to be alert, mm-hmm. you know, and to and to think critically because this is our lives, it's our children's lives. This is um, our future and um, their future. So, again, the purpose of the podcast is I thank you for breaking this down. I've learned a lot. I hope the listeners have. And uh, do you have any final comments? Not not really, Sandy. I really enjoyed this so much. And, And I guess I would just throw in again... Be sure to inform yourselves mm-hmm. when it comes to I mean it's your taxes that you're paying. And you're out there working and sweating and and, and so got an achy back and sore feet. Yeah, and, <laughs> and so it's you absolutely have a say in how that money is being spent. Mm-hmm. But you have and, to know what questions to ask. And yeah, you have to know the questions to ask and you have to know uh, which sound bites to believe. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not many of them. <laughs> okay, well, this has been um, What About Us? I'm Sandy Rice, and Linda Sherrill is my guest today. And uh, thank you for listening. Tell your friends about us. We're on uh, Google uh, Play and iTunes. And uh, we'll have something else for you in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. <laughs>